Hey, everybody. Before we get the show started, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. Once again, we're sponsored by Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits is an auditing firm in the cryptocurrency community. They're available for consulting services for doing audits on various smart contracts and dApps, as well as uh, company infrastructure and setting up process and procedure. They also released a suite of tools open source to the community for you to use uh, when developing smart contracts that integrate directly into Embark and Truffle, as well as uh, run on their own. So they're really great to use. Lots of information, tutorials at trailerbits.com on how to get to use them. This episode, on the other hand, uh, talks about a few of the other things they do. Last time we mentioned the conferences that they hold. This time we're going to talk about a lot of the blogs and writing that they do to give general ideas on best practices and how-tos on how to navigate your way in this space. In particular, we wanted to highlight a blog It's called How to Safely Store Cryptocurrency. Uh, in this blog, Trail of Bits goes through the process of taking, making sure that you own your private keys, secure your private keys, and maintain them safely. We'll include that in the show notes for you to check out. I highly recommend it, as well as everything else on their website and blog. Um, I really enjoyed reading these things, going through the analysis they give, as well as some of the insight and how-tos on how they uh, help you navigate this space securely, safely, and, uh, and efficiently. Enjoy the show. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. I have my trusty co-host with me, Colin Couché. Say what's up, everybody, Colin. What's up, everybody, Colin? Uh, today is episode 42, I believe. And today we have a we have another outstanding guest, highly technical audience. Uh, it's Brandon Goodell, a researcher, Dr. Brandon Goodell, sorry, a researcher for... Uh, for Monero, the Monero, is it Monero Research Institute? What exactly is the Monero is Lab? Right? Monero Research Lab. Uh, it's uh, the name that we came up with in 2014, and it's kind of stuck. Yeah, and, I, and I'm looking through your LinkedIn. You do like you are a legitimate like this is a postdoctoral research position for you. Is that correct? Um, so this is the problem with having a crowdfunded <laughs> open source project is you can kind of pick your own title. Um, one of my former advisors always gave me the advice to, uh, call it a postdoc until you know, you're not in academia anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, I, 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 it, I do postdoctoral work. I have a doctorate and I do doctorate research. Um, I don't have people advising me in the same way a traditional postdoc would. And so um, I've sort of re changed my title to research associate to be a little bit closer to the reality of the situation. Makes sense. Well, then in that case, let's, why don't we give you a, a quick introduction um, or allow you to introduce yourself. How did you get into the space? Like, how did you get into doing kind of bleeding edge research on cryptocurrency and blockchain and related technology? 
Well, in 2013, uh, the guy who, uh, another one of the Monero researchers, uh, Sarong Noether, he, uh, he he introduced me to the idea of Bitcoin and I was laughing really hard because, you know, it's like you're mining Bitcoin in your basement and you're making money on your computer. That's just ridiculous. Um, but I started looking into it and there was this uh, point where um, uh, there was this like intellectual switch that got thrown and I realized I was I was like trying to learn about Bitcoin without learning about it. And I was being really lazy about learning about cryptography and hash functions and stuff like that. And I, I just had this switch was thrown in my head where I was like, okay, I actually need to like learn how this works from the ground up uh, under the hood, Crypto cryptographically computer on the computer science end of things, how the network works, everything. And um, at that point, I started looking into other white papers uh, and looking into other coins. And Ricardo uh, Spani, the the lead developer at the time, Fluffy Pony, he contacted me about uh, doing a review of the white paper for Monero for the Kryptonite white paper. Um, and uh, he offered to help uh, help pay my rent a little bit in the middle of grad school in exchange for a review of the Kryptonite white paper. And that's how I got sucked in. So 2013, 2014, I guess, you know, you're, you're looking at this stuff, you're trying to differentiate it between wow gold and like actual like currency. Yeah. And you're like, what is this? Like, this is like, what is this candy crush gems? Like, yeah, that's how I kind of originally like approached. I was like, come on. And then, you know, you look into it, you see this. I saw one of your earlier comments uh, a long time ago it was basically you, you, you were kind of like still seemed a little skeptical around that time. And it was a, uh, um you you said uh you're getting into monero which seems like bitcoin's like cousin or something and like so how would you like how did you sort of like feel when you saw monero and what did you th actually let's just dial that back a bit what is monero like how does it work <laughs> like what is what makes what sets a uh, monero apart from bitcoin what are the fundamental concepts which make monero have a specific level of privacy and what are the limits to those levels so firstly, unlike other cryptocurrency projects, Monero is not a fork of Bitcoin. Uh, we, have our we have a completely different protocol called CryptoNote that uh, was described uh, ostensibly in 2012, but that's a, that's a um, debatable, debatable thing. Um, Monero has kind of a shady beginning history, uh, but what's interesting about Monero is it, it operates very similarly to Bitcoin. In the same way that you have a transaction, and that transaction consists of some inputs and some outputs and a fee, um, and those transactions are all recorded on a ledger in a consistent way, in a way that everybody can check that it's correct, right? So these things are um, very similar to Bitcoin. Uh, anybody can hop on the network, and uh, anybody can hop on the <laughs> anybody can hop on the network and uh, transmit a transaction. Um, so it's permissionless, just like Bitcoin. Um, the the differences are are sort of like in, in the abstract, but as a consequence, um, uh, the the fundamental architecture is very different. So, for example, one of the things that makes Monero different than Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is sort of like a classic check, right? Like everybody's written a check to their landlord. It has a from, it has a to, it has an amount, it has a date. In Monero, the from field consists of 11 other people or 10 other people. So you can never really tell exactly which of these people the transaction came from. 
So having a Monero transaction is sort of like having a check, except you can't really tell who signed it. And that's the first way that Monero protects people's privacy. The second way that Monero protects people's privacy is that it sort of obscures the amount of the transaction. So that somebody looking at this transaction, instead of seeing a usual check with a from field and a to field and an amount, they see a from field with like 11 possible senders. And they see an amount field that just looks like a gar like arbitrary garbage. It looks like white noise. And so you're hiding um, who's signing a transaction and how much they're sending. And the only real question is whether or not you can hide who receives the transaction. And of course, if you're announcing these transactions on the network, then you also have to hide where the transaction is coming from with like your IP address at broadcast over Tor or whatever. So there are a couple of routes to try to verify a Bitcoin transaction. One of them includes checking the key. Another of them includes checking that the amounts add up to zero, um, the inputs minus the outputs and so on and so forth. And Monero has an analog for each one of these things. But since we try to obfuscate every component of the Monero transaction, um, sometimes our checking systems can be pretty complicated. For example, if I want to send a hundred Monero to Colin, um, uh, but nobody can check if my transaction actually consists of a hundred Monero, um, then I could send him a thousand and send myself negative a negative a thousand, and it looks like I sent zero. And if I can do that, then we have certain problems. So when we're obfuscating the amounts, we need to uh, equip them with bullet like range proofs, and our range proofs are built with bullet proofs, which are an extremely fast implementation of range proofs. So. Um, basically, when I say that Monero is like a cousin of Bitcoin, I mean, for every little component that exists over in Bitcoin, there exists a corresponding component over in Monero, except it's designed to try to protect your privacy. If I had to try and maybe recap that in a lot of ways, it's like uh, people, when I try to explain Bitcoin to a lot of people, I, I usually often tell them that it's it's not necessarily the components that make up Bitcoin that are that are new and novel. It's the way in which they were combined that made them novel, that made the whole thing novel, and it gave mm -hmm. us kind of digital scarcity. But each of those components exposes something about the uh, end user in terms of uh, the pseudonymous name, the amount they're sending, where they're sending it from, so on and so forth. And when you try to explain them narrow, maybe uh, like what you just kind of said all in one is that it tries to take all of those components, figure out what's being exposed in terms of user privacy, and tries to obfuscate that as much as possible using different different components or improved that's a, components. That's a fantastic summary. That's a fantastic summary. And if you look at something like Zcash, which is arguably our best competitor in terms of privacy, um, they they sort of do the same thing except they try to throw it all under one big zk snark umbrella, um, and uh, there's trade offs to the two different approaches. But that's basically entirely correct. So without giving too much judgment on either approach, what 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 are the trade-offs there? Well, the trade-offs, prim the primary and most important trade-off in my mind is the trusted setup. Um, Zcash and Monero vary from each other because I can construct a Monero transaction without ever really having to trust that some random number was correctly thrown away. Um, but if I use Zcash, I do need to trust that. Now, the thing is... <laughs> We can, we can argue about whether or not this trust model is practically important because almost all of us use Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank or some bank system that is um, practically already um, an intermediary in controlling our transactions. And so 
by moving from something like Wells Fargo to Zcash, I view that still as a net gain because even though I'm trusting a part, a third party, um, in, in some way, um, it's not in the same way that Wells Far I trust Wells Fargo with my information. And of course, moving from Zcash to Monero, I no longer even need to trust that the original developers were were honest in the way that they executed things. And if you guys remember the recent dust up about the the transcripts from the Zcash generation key generation ceremony, um, it's it's not always obvious whether or not things were done correctly. Um, and if something was not done correctly and then somebody purposely deletes a file in order to make it look like it's been done correctly or in order to hide some evidence, um, that's sort of like a really great example of why we try to avoid the trusted setup in the first place. So again, not trying to pass judgment on the Zcash development team because there's an enormous amount of philosophical differences that I, I don't even grasp between the two communities. Um, just as a matter of practical trust, if you're getting into the Bitcoin space because you're into permissionless currency, um, Zcash seems like, uh, well, it's better than Wells Fargo, but uh, mm -hmm. you're still trusting a third party. And yeah, so that's interesting to me. Uh, I, I kind of see where you're coming from with that. Um, there are benefits to snarks, which is probably why they chose it in that it's a bit faster. Oh, or Dude, snarks are really cool technology. Yeah, I they love really them. Are. They're yeah. like fantastic. Um, but uh, like in the end, it's not the snarks that I'm criticizing. Just like the Zcash yeah. people aren't really criticizing the unforgeability of ring signatures, they're criticizing the anonymity set sizes of ring signatures. What do you, you mean know? by that? Oh gosh. So um, uh, so if you have uh, so okay. Before I before I say before I answer your question, I need to preface this because this is the sort of conversation that can lead to fud. <laughs> um, so let me let me just be really clear here: a black hole in the in the middle of the galaxy leaks information about the contents behind the event horizon. There is no way that zk snarks or ring signatures are ever going to completely protect your financial information from the most prying of eyes. Maybe I can maybe I can interject here and change. I think what the arguments of both of both the networks tend to focus on. It's not necessarily you know part of it is the actual technology and what's being obfuscated. A lot of it is what you mentioned. This thing called an anonymity set, and that is the amount of forensics we can do with the available information to then decouple what's obfuscated from the um, actual users. So the answer, the short answer is yes. Um, the ring signature setups that we currently have because of our anonymity set sizes, the information that is leaked from our, our system uh, can be leveraged to greater effect than the information that is leaked through ZK Snarks. However, both can be leveraged like crazy. And if you look at recent linkability papers, um, both for Monero and Zcash, the situation isn't as private as uh, the public facing PR departments of, of, you know, want you to think. So, and that's why I mentioned the, 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 black hole is never really going to protect your privacy in the same way you know like the the changes that we can make to monero to improve anonymity set sizes let's say i'm writing a paper right now and there's some statistical evidence that hasn't come out yet it's like preliminary evidence that suggests that like relatively small ring sizes like 20 can be just as good as a zk snark um if that's the case then like uh is there really that much of a practical difference between the two coins I'm not so sure if both coins can be linked in a probabilistic way in the same way that Twitter can sort of like figure out your interests in life. Um, 
whoever's watching the blockchain might not be a hundred percent sure that you were spending at this particular vendor, but they are like 60% sure. And that might be enough in some sort of tyrannical regime in, you know, North Korea or something like that for you to get killed. But if that's the case, then you're talking about the threat model is just using cryptocurrencies is, is, is enough to get you shot. And so the, the main difference between Zcash and Monero is, is that Monero focuses on plausible deniability you can't t determine plausibly determine the path of money um and in the court of law in a nation of laws that's probably going to be good enough privacy i'm not sure well, if i answered your guys's questions directly no, i'm sorry that, 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 you know i like to bring in the the bigger picture of this as well it's not alone going to be enough but it is a it is a trail that can be followed and lead to other evidence Yes. Correct? And in fact, both blockchains can be leveraged with each other. So anything that I learn about uh, a user on the Monero blockchain, I can then apply to that same user in the Zcash blockchain. I might not know which user he is, but I can apply that information. Um, and in fact, vice versa. If I'm, an, for example, if I'm a KYC exchange and I'm watching all the Zcash transactions that are coming in and out, first off, they're already all transparent. So I'm, I'm going to be able to glean quite a bit of information. Even after Zcash uh, deprecates their transparent addresses, um, then, uh, you know, these KYC exchanges can still track everything that's going on at the exchange. So they can already comply with the law in any way. Um, so, you know, there's a certain point at which uh, <sighs> this is such so a it's not a, It's not a perfect laundering system. It's basically my big fear about Monero is, is that I, I, I don't, I am a low information, you know, person when it comes to Monero. Um, I think a lot of my, my focus has mostly been in the Ethereum space and a little bit in the Bitcoin space. But for, the, but, but for Monero, I've just kind of like not looked at it too deeply, just laying that out there right now. Sure. When I hear about it, to me, it sounds like a money laundering machine. Um, but it do sounds think, like that's actually not the case in you, any real sense. Do you think the same thing about Zcash? I'm curious. Yeah. Okay. Anything that anything that's to that degree. I I actually so here's here's a I have a, I have a differentiation there in a, in a lot of ways. Um, they could they both could be. One has particular use cases because uh, the one pivotal thing that Monero does is that it's it's private by default. So your anonymity set of people using the privacy features of Monero is everyone, whereas Zcash it isn't. It's much more difficult to actually use shielded addresses. That makes a huge difference in the actual uh, granted privacy of doing things when using the privacy set of a, of a given blockchain. That being said, I feel like the the initialization of Zcash was mostly, and this is maybe just my personal opinion, for research funding research purposes of pushing the idea of that novel cryptography that makes it up, zero knowledge starts, and, and the cryptographers that do it. This gave them a really good funding mechanism to push that research and make applied cryptography in that area. Monero potentially initialized or started out with different purposes, but then grew to a much more legitimate uh, project that, and then you have um, who's actually using it. And since when the dark, when the, the dark net and the dark net kind of uh, marketplaces started opting in for doing Monero by default, that changed the perception of what Monero is used for drastically. Even though it's you know what it could potentially be used for is, is much. So um, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, firstly. Yeah. I okay. When you say Colin, when you say money laundering machine, I have to I have to stop you because because the thing is is okay. 
is if we don't think of cash as a money laundering machine, then we should not think of Monero as a money laundering machine. And if we think of cash as the currency of choice of somebody who wants to buy a banned book in an authoritarian regime, like if you want to buy the Bible in North Korea, you're not going to be using a, the, your state credit card, right? You, you're going to use some sort of cash or bartering. Um, and so the thing is about the phrase money laundering is that it's so loaded is it, like money laundering is a crime. You're hiding your income from the government so that you can avoid paying taxes or whatever. Um, but uh, general criminal usage of a technology um, is is a tricky thing. Whether or not a tool is is uh, criminal itself, um, I'm not so sure about. I do know that not all laws in all nations are just. And so what is a criminal act in North Korea may be considered a just act in America. And so um, I, I really... I really try to stop thinking of these. Of and to be fair, I, I was actually speaking in a more abstract sense. So oh, right now, sure. if you buy if you buy a Bitcoin that's dirty, um, there's no way for you to really undirty it, right? But you can, if there's a marketplace for dirty Bitcoin, which there probably is, um, then there's a um, or you know use cases or somebody can you still use a Bitcoin that's dirty because they're doing dirty things anyway? So who cares? Um, and then you have this dirty Bitcoin, you want to get legitimate Bitcoin. Um, one way to do that would be to sell the Bitcoin in exchange for Monero, and then from Monero, buy clean Bitcoin. Yeah, and all that does is taint the new clean Bitcoin. Does it really? So if you use I mean, Monero I... to, 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 if you use an, uh, just any, like even, like, let's say cash, okay? You gave the okay, example so cash, you... perfect. So I meet somebody in person at a, at a coffee shop, and I say, yeah. I, want, I want your Bitcoin, you want my Monero. Let's do a trade. Nobody's going to so, trace that. So a moment ago, Corey just described one of the benefits of um, uh, Monero, or uh, excuse me, Zcash over Monero is the anonymity set size. And then he followed it up by saying, but you know, if it's transparent and it's hard to use the shielded, then like, who cares? What you just described is the Monero equivalent of entering the unshielded pool and then exiting the, going back into the shielded pool. Explain and that think, to me again. I don't so, know quite. What's a okay. shielded pool? I don't think uh, so, the, so the shielded pool in Zcash is the pool of coins that you can't tell which one's being spent at any given time. And the transparent pool of coins in Zcash it acts almost exactly like Bitcoin, totally transparently. And one of the criticisms, one of the ways that you link Zcash transactions is you watch somebody send a transaction out of the shielded pool and then send it back into the shielded pool or vice versa. A transaction goes into the shielded pool for a certain amount, and since it left a tra transparent address, you know what the amount is. And then just a few moments later, the same the same amount comes out of the shielded pool to a new transparent address. And anybody who has half a brain can look at that those pairs of transactions and say, "Ah, oh, one point nine nine four seven one two eight bit uh, Zcash went into the shielded pool, and then one point nine nine four seven blah 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 Zcash went out of the shielded pool." Gee, I wonder what happened there. Right. Um, if you do the same thing with Monero, you might take some Monero, buy some Bitcoin with it, send it to a vendor. Um, the vendor may then immediately buy some Monero with it. And anybody would be able to look at those transactions and link them together, both on the Monero blockchain and the Bitcoin blockchain. Or it can go in the other direction and you're not buying from a vendor, um, but you're trying to clean a Bitcoin like you just described. You have a dirty Bitcoin, you buy some Monero and then you immediately sell it for the same amount of Bitcoin at a new address. 
all you've done is link the two blockchains together. You haven't obscured anything. Not necessarily, but yeah, I mean, like there's personal exchange as well, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Right. Now, the one way that we think at Monero that you can avoid these problems, um, for Zcash, you... Okay, in, in any case, if you're going to a transparent pool with transparent amounts, you're not really going to be able to avoid the problem. But if you're going to, um, like, for example, in Monero, you're doing totally default transactions, all of the amounts are shielded, you can send a transaction to yourself a couple of times, and this will reduce the probability that um, somebody can link the inputs and the outputs. Okay. And uh, that's called churning, and we're currently writing a paper on formalizing that. Okay. So, so every time, you, uh, sorry, every time you uh, send a transaction in either the Zcash shielded pool or Monero, you can think of it as taking a step further into a bigger and bigger crowd and then trying to get lost into the crowd. So if you send a transaction to yourself a couple of times, you go really, really deep into the crowd before you construct your true transaction. And then somebody's like, oh, well, I know this money came from somewhere in that big crowd of people over there. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So you can actually, yeah, okay, that makes, okay. And when you say send money to yourself, you mean literally create another address. You're not actually sending it to your same address, correct? Uh, so. In Monero, you can send it to your same address. Holy shit. Yeah, because of the way uh, like, the way it defaults, like there are no, there is no turning off the privacy uh, uh, features of Monero. So by doing it, every, every time you do something, it basically... Oh my God! It mixes all of the coins. Regardless well, one big Mobius contract, basically. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say it mixes, um, but yeah, essentially. Um, so, Monero addresses are just like Bitcoin addresses. Um, when 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 you're talking about wallet addresses, well, I don't want to say just like because they're from a different curve, but they're they're just a big string of characters. Um, every transaction is associated with a new one-time key that is generated from your recipient's public key. So you can send the same public key over and over again. Every single time, you're going to get a new one-time key describing your transaction, and they're not linkable between transactions. Um, and so somebody can't necessarily tell that these eight different one-time keys went to the same person. So you can just send it to yourself. So, so that kind of changes the definition of... Okay, so to me, that's interesting. So it's not even like an account model how you store things. Is that correct? Oh, correct. Um, account so that's, models so for it's storing like, things is yeah, awful. Like describe this, please. Like, yeah. And this also might explain why you use Bulletproofs. Oh, just to be... So there's Starks, there's Starks, there's Snarks, there's Bulletproofs. <laughs> snarks obviously require a trusted setup. They're very fast, but not as fast as Bulletproofs. Um and well, they're actually, a little bit larger in storage size. Starks, on the other hand, have a have a much larger footprint. And so, if you're going to be doing this over and over and over again with these range, this range proofing, then you're going to want a smaller footprint, which means bulletproofs. Despite the fact they're not, um, I'm sorry, snarks, stark, snarks are faster in bulletproofs, um, or is it? Uh, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But that's you see what, what I'm saying? Like, I think it's actually tells. footprint size that you're concerned about, which is why you would choose. Bulletproofs over Starks, is that correct? So in, in terms of footprint size, um, that's actually an interesting question because, okay, so let's say the, bit, the blockchain is going to grow at a fixed rate for the next year, and each transaction has a fixed size, right? Um, one question that we ask at Monero Research Lab before we make any changes or consider changes is we ask, okay, after one year, what's the download and sync time going to be for a new node hopping onto the Monero network? 
And if our change is going to make the download and sync time better than if we did not make the change, then we'll make the change. So let me give you an example. Ring signatures. We currently have a handful of sublinear ring signature schemes. And for the people in the audience, this is, a, this is proving that you know one of n different keys, but it's sublinear in the sense that it takes up less than o, big O of n space. So it's like logarithmically sized. So proving this is less than proving uh, like the size in of like space, each individual yes. signature, right? But in verification time, it's always going to be linear. There ain't nothing you can do about that. You always have to touch every bit in every, in every key. Otherwise, you're going to be breaking unforgeability. So the confirmation time, the verification time, is, is always linear in this, the ring size. But we have a couple of sublinearly sized ring signatures. So the question is, if it takes a certain amount of time to download the blockchain, and then for each of those bits, I need to verify it. If I add together the download and verification time, after a year, will I get a payoff? And it turns out that these sublinear ring signature schemes, even though they save space, they're a little bit slower in verification time. So after a year, even though our blockchain would be significantly smaller, our verification time would have blown up and we would have uh, had a problem after a year. So we haven't instituted any of these nice sublinear ring signature schemes, which would give us really big anonymity set sizes, um, specifically because verification time is still just going to be murderous. Um, so these little trade-offs between space and time, for example, uh, they occur throughout all of the development process in cryptocurrencies. Right now in the privacy space, we have ZK Starks and ZK Snarks, and I'm not actually going to comment much on either of those because um, even though I technically know what they are, how they work, so on and so forth, I'm not an expert in those things, and I don't want to overstep my bounds. Um, but I do know that bulletproofing a statement is slower than ZK snarking a statement, depending on the statement. Um, a bulletproof is a general proving system for proving linear relationships. It's basically an algebra game. Um, and it's not as fast and efficient as ZK snarks, but it still can prove almost ar like arbitrary arithmetic circuits, which is really cool. Um, and then there's like our ring signature schemes. And if you think things have gotten complicated with like acronyms by this point, our ring signature schemes are about to explode because right now we're, we're okay. Our original ring signature schemes were LSAG schemes. And then we did ring confidential transactions with ML SAG schemes for multi-layered. And now we're looking into like lightning style off-chain uh, stuff using dual output. DL SAGs, and we just figured out a way to save both on verification time and signature space with our CL SAG, compressed L SAG signature schemes. So basically, all of our signature schemes are about to blow up. Um, on the plus side, we have uh, compressed our ring signature schemes, and one year from now, it's going to be a lot faster to download and sync the blockchain because of the changes that we're making over the next couple of weeks. Oh, really? What are those changes? Oh, so um, uh, I believe his name is Random Run. He's a contrib Monero contributor on GitHub. He realized that we could compress our signatures by computing things in a slightly different way. It makes smaller signatures, and after testing it, it looks like the signatures are faster to verify. So not only do we have the speed gain, but also the space gain. So like one year from the next big fork that we implement this, I don't think it's going to be going into the next fork, but one year after the fork after that, you're going to be able to look at the Monero blockchain graph and see the day that our small signatures, small fast signatures went live. It's going to be pretty cool.
you think that the uh, like there's there's clearly a lot of uh, I guess funding of legitimate cryptography research going into Monero. Are you are you sharing this with other projects? Do you feel like other projects are doing something completely dimmer? Is there is there redundant work in a lot of these things? Like how does this work out? Because like I there's there, the technology that you that you use. Uh, parts of it can definitely be used across the entire cryptocurrency space. Like signature schemes are useful across all yep. applied cryptography, but how they fit in is is you know subtle and and the devil's in the details. But are, are there are you going to meetups? Is Monero actively participating and trying to bolster the security or privacy feature set of all cryptocurrencies, or is it um, mainly kind of uh, so? Actually, line? there's a lot to unpack in your question again because you asked about both funding. And um, the participation of Monero and other projects, and those are two two different animals. So the first thing is the Monero crowdfunding system is actually how I get my salary. Technically, anybody can apply to get funding from the Monero crowdfunding system and ask the crowd for money, and anybody will be able to um, get that money if they can convince the community to pay for it. Um, that's how me and Sarong both got our jobs is we humbly went to the community and we said, Hey, we have cryptography experience. We would really like to work for you guys. And we got hired. Um, that's how the Monero open source hardware projects are getting paid. Um, and so, uh, the Zcash foundation or not, excuse me, not the Zcash foundation, the electric coin company, uh, recently, uh, instituted like a new, a similar like funding model, um, so that people can start applying for grants or maybe it was the Zcash foundation. I always get the two confused. Um, so in terms of the funding model, um, if anybody out there wants to get funded from the Monero community, the only thing that's stopping you is your ability to convince the Monero community to fund you. And I know that sounds silly because technically it's always true. The only thing stopping me from getting funded from the city of Denver, I guess, is me convincing the city of Denver to give me money for some random project, right? It's always true. But in this case, you can go to getmonero.org and you can open up the crowdfunding system and it's sort of like crypto uh, GoFundMe. So that answers the question about funding. Um, in terms of funding for other projects um, or getting funding from other projects, uh, Monero Conferenzo is actually partially funded by the Zcash Foundation. Um, uh, they are one of many, don they just donated directly to uh, the Monero Conferenzo, which is our, con our first annual conference that we're holding this summer. Um, and they just donated as if they were a regular old Monero community member, along with all the other different Monero community members. Um, so we have interactions with various product projects. Um, uh, in fact, I do want to speak a little bit more about that in a minute here. Um, and actually, I guess your other question was involvement, and th this fits directly in with that um, perfectly. So, uh, yeah, we're hosting the first Monero conference of this June, um, and it's partially funded uh, by the Monero community, um, community, just all donors. Um, and then the rest is coming from ticket sales and sponsorships. Um, so uh, if people want to come out to Denver this uh, June to attend the Monero Conferenza, we would love for you guys to come out. Uh, not all the talks are about Monero specifically. We're trying to have talks on uh, privacy and society in general. Um, and so personally, I haven't gone to a lot of meetups. I tried to hold a couple of Monero meetups recently, and I, I just don't I, I just don't have a good control over my own calendar in general. So like I'm, I'm really bad at stuff like that. So <laughs> hosting the Conferenza has been an interesting challenge. Um, but yeah, I think that answers both your questions. So, all right. So something I really want to touch on here, and I think we brought it up in a previous episode. I just can't remember which one um, is uh, some concerns about scalability with regard to blockchains in general. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And um, who did I ask this? Um, I can't remember. Maybe you'll remember after I say the question, Corey. But um, I asked, can Layer 2 solutions such as, like, state channels mm-hmm. work on privacy coins like Monero? And I think maybe a side question on that is smart contracts as well. Um, um, how does all that work in Monero right now? I, I don't think you have like a, a scripted smart contract system, or maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, correct. Um, our, our smart contract system, we don't have a smart contract. We don't have a scripting language, I should say. Um, we currently have a version of multisig, um, which writing the multi ring, the, the version of the version of ring signatures that is multi-sig is a weird and strange land to be dwelling in mathematically. Um, but uh, we have multi-sig, and so as soon as you have multi-sig, you have the ability to start doing some of the very basic, um, uh, for example, off-chain atomic swaps um, from the original proposals. Um, so like, as soon as you have that, you're good to go. Also, that DL-SAG signature scheme that I mentioned earlier, me and Sarong and um, Pedro Moreno-Sanchez at uh, TU Vienna and another um, co-author we're currently working on um, a paper describing return addresses in Monero for use in off channel or like state channels and stuff like that um, so the short answer is uh, I don't know about the scripting language I don't know how far off that is honestly um, but I do know or whether or not we're ever going to do it but I do know that the idea of lightning a, a lightning network for Monero is within spitting distance and that's kind of been our current, um, I wouldn't say our current focus, but it's been um, an active area of research. Okay, so let's 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 uh, let's dissect this a little bit. So that's a payment channel, um, and that's great, and that's essential. If that's the core focus of of Monero, you've basically that's all you need, really. For for you know, a payment channel is not a state channel, but it is it is a scaling solution. It's off chain. Yep. I would assume it have similar privacy uh, safety measures as Monero, using Monero as the backing system. Um, but let's just say we're looking towards the future and we want to make a privacy coin or we want to extend Monero to have some sort of um, uh, automated contract state, okay? Um, which you don't know when that'll happen, but I understand. But um, what are the concerns with scalability and taking you know those kind of things and making them kind of like scale as well like first off what is the scalability concerns of monero presently because i don't know that very well uh okay so before before we get to the scalability issues of monero um the what you're describing for a smart contract or a digital asset scheme built on top of the monero blockchain that's what tari labs is working on right now um this is a uh, uh, fluffy pony one of the um, or lead de- original re- lead developers of Monero um, is working with uh, Naveen Jain from uh, oh gosh there's so many company names um, uh, he, he, they're building Tari Labs uh, their whole purpose is to build a side chain on top of Monero that does digital assets um, so I in fact I believe that you can download the app Big Neon uh, to buy concert tickets already and get tickets through Tari um, I'm not so sure how decentralized their system is yet but I do know that that's like one active area um, so getting back to the scalability issues of Monero um, so my big white whale in Monero it actually isn't scaling it's privacy because 
I'm genuinely concerned that somebody somewhere is going to be using Monero to keep themselves safe, and then a stupid decision on my part is going to get them harmed somehow. Um, personally, I think that privacy, especially financial privacy, is like a human rights issue of the 21st century that we haven't noticed yet. Especially if you look at like Equifax and Facebook, and I mean, like some of us have noticed it, but yeah, we've um, noticed it. <laughs> yeah, right. Our whole uh, audience has noticed that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm we are all on the fire. same page yeah. here. General public, like say for instance, like I think what he's trying to get at is like say for instance, this stuff takes off, we have mass adoption, and people are using it without necessarily knowing it. What is the consequence? Like, how does it make you feel if you're a back end dev that created that system and it ends up having some fault that actually gets someone? because they thought they were right but i mean like i guess what i mean is um the reason i say this is because okay blockchains are big and they're slow and they grow over time um they never get smaller you can't make a blockchain smaller i mean i guess you can prune but then you're talking about light nodes and that's a whole own security issue um if you look at something like okay so in monero the way that we protect against double spends Remember earlier I was mentioning that uh, you know we could construct a, a whole ring and you can't tell who signed the transaction. You need some way to protect against double spends. And the way that we do that is with key images. And the way that we, so we basically take like a hash of the key that's signing the ring signature and we're including that in the transaction. Um, but that means that every miner needs to keep track of every key image forever <laughs> to make sure that there's no double spend attempts in the future. So now you have an extra set of information that every miner needs to keep around forever and so like there's a bunch of scaling issues that are built into cryptocurrencies that it just seems to get bigger and bigger over time with no way of making it smaller um i that don't would be one of the advantages of an account model right you can actually say hey all right well after this point i could kind of say like these accounts are square i'm pretty sure this is correct yeah, yeah. that's what pruning well, that's is what pruning so like is. But you can't really do that with monero can you uh, right. Um, the problem with account models is, man, they are so vulnerable to reorganizations, right? Like if, if the past 20 blocks get reorged or 10, 10 blocks get reorged and your new 10 blocks have transactions occurring in a different order, all of your accounts are all garbled. And in some accounts that maybe should have lost money, don't and so on and so forth. Um, account-based models are extremely um, vulnerable to network reorganizations, or uh, excuse me, blockchain reorganizations due to network dynamics like delay and latency. So they make it um, pretty hard to run a permissionless cryptocurrency network unless you have a really long confirmation time, um, which most people don't find acceptable in any way. Personally, I wouldn't use a cryptocurrency that has an account-based model unless it had like longer than like a 24-hour confirmation time. And probably a huge hash rate. What's what's uh what's the time to finality? You know, acceptable time to finality and confirmation on like Monero. What's the equivalent on that on Monero? It sounds like you don't do that. So, I mean, don't reorgs still happen in Monero? Oh yeah, reorgs happen in Monero all the time. But if you're doing an output-based currency, then a reorg can't turn an account negative. Gotcha. Right. Um. Uh. So. So output-based currencies are always monotonically growing, but are extremely resilient to reorgs, which is, makes it particularly suitable for a decentralized network. Account-based stuff is really good for centralized organizations. Okay, that's something I got to definitely take a little time to unpack because I hadn't really thought of it deeply. Oh, dude, this is something that like, yeah, I 
there's there's like a whole class of concepts in the cryptocurrency space that every time that I get exposed to them, I have to sit down for like an hour and 20 minutes and think about them. And then like I'll forget them. And a month later, somebody's like, oh, you forgot about the Monero stealth addresses. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, the account based model, there, there's a lot of things in this space. OK, so the word specious is probably the single best word for 2017, 2018 cryptocurrency. Like everybody sits around and like makes these specious arguments that seem reasonable and they really aren't. Um, and uh, this is how you talk yourself into proof of space. <laughs> or wait, proof wait, of wait, stake. What? Oh, proof of stake. I was like, proof of space. Like, wait, wait, we're going to talk about well, actually, Shia coin do... now? Or... No, no, I actually do have my doubts about proof of space, but for different reasons. And I don't want to quantify them because I haven't thought about them recently. And I'll forget some fundamental concept and someone will be like, ah, you forgot about X. And I'll be like, damn it. I'm kind of particularly excited about proof of space over time in particular. Uh, proof of replication stuff is something I'm particularly looking at because uh, it has yeah, wider implications paper. if they can crack it really well. It has wider implications than just cryptocurrency. It changes the game in the way that we store data and incentivize people with uh, empty hard drive space. So I'm really hoping that kind, kind of work out eventually. Okay, so consider the following. What happens when proof of space becomes like a thing and all of a sudden disk drive space becomes highly valuable what what happens we have tons of disk drive space yeah who has the most centralized organizations such as amazon yeah so as soon as you move to proof of space you have bezos coin yeah except well i understand that but like even even then like you're just proving the space like you're wor like yeah they'll be the greatest miner on the planet but that's okay because everybody benefits. Everybody would have uh, their files literally being incentivized in a dynamic marketplace that's set, that's set through uh, you know, uh, a demand market that's not regulated by Amazon. It's regulated by a decentralized protocol, which can't be violated. If they do, then it, it, it basically, the system becomes itself worthless. So before we go too far Sorry, into this. Rabbit, I feel like uh, Brandon and I can talk for like quite three an hours. outstanding what, what? tangent. I think it'd be interesting to go into what is a precursor to this. And that is the fact like that also goes into account the difference between proof of work and proof of stake is that uh, ultimately when doing any type of consensus, there needs to be some resource that goes into um, weighing someone's vote in in that consensus with proof of work that's typically some form of energy which is then used to create hash power which is then used to give you a chance at solving a puzzle that gives you the opportunity to add a block proof of stake that's a that's a so that's an external resource that's energy put into the blockchain to help solidify it proof of space is is actually using hard drive space as as that external resource proof of stake gets rid of an external resource and uses an internal resource to do the same thing. Now, go. <laughs> um, so the best explanation that I've heard of proof of stake, um, other than like that one website that would allow you to like upload a picture of a ribeye and you get a token or something. Um, proof of stake is like a formalization, a cryptographic formalization of the stakeholder model of a corporation. And when you have the stakeholder model of the corporation, you're inheriting all of the flaws and all the benefits of that model. Um, so I'm not so sure if there's actually a resource that is at play in proof of stake. Uh, I know that a lot of coins try to tie energy somehow to stake, 
so that they can solve the nothing at stake problem. I'm not convinced it's possible. If you look at proof of work, you're talking about thermodynamic energy. The laws of thermodynamics are what you have to work against in order to undo transactions in proof of work. Proof of stake, it seems to me that you just need to undo people's opinions, um, yeah. which, which is, is fine. Mechanism, correct. So it's, it's willpower and work and labor that's being, that's being in, that tied to this. So it, it's a more abstract concept, I would say, than electricity or, you know, hard drive oh, sure. space. Yeah. But it's still, it's still, a, that's actual, like that's a real thing. Labor, yes. labor energy is a thing. And that's what I think proof of stake actually is. It's a measurement of labor We're trying energy. To be. I mean, well, not, not... Yeah, ideally, ideally, I think, right. you know, it remains to be seen in my mind, but and it, 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 you from know, a conceptual standpoint to say that it's not tied to anything, I don't think that's, I think that's just ignoring well, this. It's tied to the same, it's tied with the same level of like strength of ties as our current system is to social norms, right? Like if you're talking about the stakeholder model, you're talking about current, like upholding social norms. And right now, I already like trust an enormous number of institutions in my everyday life, ranging from like the gas station to not be watering down my gas to you know the bank that I use to like uh, pay my rent and stuff. Um, and so, in, in that sense, proof of stake is not necessarily worse than our current systems. Um, but because of their the level of so social unprovable non-quantifiable stuff going into just persuading enough people's opinions. Uh, I don't like it as a base layer of, of things for confirmation. The reason I like thermodynamic energy, and in fact, also why I like proof of space, is because there's it's something that you can't fake. You can't fake thermodynamic energy. You can't fake space. I might be able to Sybil attack the board of directors. I might be able to convince them one by one that I'll harm their families if they don't vote in a certain way. And so um, voting in proof of stake is literally just locking up your coin. That's it. It's just saying, Hey, I believe this network to be true. Yeah, sure. And, and the thing is, is that if it's not true, that's also provable by anybody who has access to the network, the protocol is open and, 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 and the, the software that runs the protocol is open and everything operates on the same language of how to communicate and what is on what is true and what is not true. Proof of stake is just a way of disincentivizing people from being dishonest actors. And the reason they could do that is because it's public. So it's kind of invalid in my mind it's, to say that it depends. it's a voting mechanism. Even it definitely depends on the implementation of proof of stake. They're not yeah, all the that's, same. That's yeah. By any and that's why delegated proof of stake is not proof of stake. It's, it's garbage. It's, it's a DAO. It's a, it's a protocol level DAO. Like There's also, and, and you're totally right to, to say that this is a voting, that any of these are voting mechanisms is a misinterpretation of what one vote, one CPU meant in like the original white paper. And it's sort of like an, a, an on purpose um, misunderstanding that people make is that you're voting on the order of the blockchain or the ledger, because technically, abstractly, that is kind of what you're doing. But it's not like you're voting every block for every change, right? And no, you're so, investing in it. That's what you're doing is you're literally staking your stuff and getting return for doing some basic work like really easy work. And and because you have money in the network and you're locking it out and taking it out of the economy, you're basically giving value to the network itself through its own coin, which to me is just like, that's that's valid. It's it's but, it's using the resource of value and labor um, rather than, <sighs> I think it's quantifiable. I don't think, I think it is a type of, of valid So Colin is referring energy. to a lot of what's happening with um, Ethereum 2.0 and the way proof of stake is, is being mapped out there. 
I think uh, the yeah, majority of things yeah. that people talk about with proof of stake is mostly delegated proof of stake, like Cosmos, Tinderman. Uh, yeah, like I don't, I don't, I think they're a good research models. project. Yeah, sorry, I, um, I didn't mean to say that. Like BitShares and stuff, I think was also delegated proof of stake. Like they, these are these are nice ideas, but they don't work out, and they're they're totally cabal ridden. Like so, I think that I think that proof of stake is nice for certain things, like um, I just don't want to base a currency on proof of stake. If I'm going to be basing something like a currency on, I mean, like I'd be fine basing a derivatives market or a stock market or something like that on proof of stake. But the idea of basing a base currency on stake instead of thermodynamics or space or raw time somehow, I mean, you can't have time without a clock and you can't have a clock without proof of work. <laughs> um, okay. it, it, if, you, if you're thinking about it in terms of like fundamental physical stuff, uh, like physics stuff, there's space and there's time, and these are things that can't be faked. And the only and and stake can't really be faked because you're constructing signatures and they're unforgeable. But they don't have a direct one-to-one relationship with space or time or energy. And because of that, I, I, I just don't think that they're as elegant of a solution. Proof. Well, I think they're. I mean, I'm still in the the camp that they're more elegant. And but I I think I like I like the Ethereum model for that so much because. It's inheriting the thermodynamic distribution. Yeah, it's been bootstrapped by proof of work, which means like for all these years, for since like 2015, it's been mined. And all that thermodynamic energy gave value to the network. And then it decided, okay, we've already distributed the value through this 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 you know elegant proof of work system. Now we can now we can sort of find another way to incentivize. It doesn't like use that wasteful system and instead inherit the value that we've gotten before and now our currency since it's already been distributed has you know you can just invest it and that's good enough and then to me i think that's valid i mean personally um and i i think that my big concern with proof of work is that it's actually a barrier to entry and actually more cabal ridden than proof of stake anybody could go out and buy 32 ethereum right now and become a staker in the network when proof of stake comes out right but not everybody can buy a mining farm in china right leave the well, current news out of the, out of the exactly, discussion so i wanted to use like what you just said is a perfect transition to what i would like to move the conversation to and that is most of the the i'd say arguments against proof of work is the unfair distribution of the hardware required to mine and this is yeah. mainly geared towards uh bitcoin and, and things that are mined with asics or like those specialized asics now, CryptoNote um, or CryptoNight, the the way you, in which you mine, the algorithm in which you mine Monero is is changed. It's different. It's it's you know ASIC resistant. You want to call that? Uh, can you explain a little bit about that and also the distribution of uh, like required hardware for mining Monero? Right. So, um, if you go back to the CryptoNote white paper, one of the things that jumped out at me when I was first reading it years ago, which is brought, what brought me to the Monero community, was this focus on egalitarian mining. Um, and and they, I feel like the author or authors uh, identified this particularly important uh, trade-off, which is this linearity in or sublinearity in uh, payoff for putting money into mining equipment. So, for example, if if I quadruple the amount of money that I put into mining equipment for proof of work, um, with Bitcoin in particular, um, then I'm going to more than quadruple the amount of hash power I have, right? There's this super linear growth in how much hash power I can buy 
per dollar as my dollars go up. And it's just an economy of scale thing. If I can buy a whole warehouse filled with miners, then I'm going to be able to operate at a better bottom line than um, somebody who's mining in their basement with two with two miners. Um, so they identified this uh, egalitarian mining concept as trying to make it as linear as possible so that if you are going to want to quadruple your total hash rate, you're going to have to quadruple your investment. Um, you don't have to spend 1.5 times your investment. And so the original Kryptonite hash algorithm was designed to occupy a lot of the L3 cache in a computer. And as a consequence, um, sort of like force the hashing algorithm through some of the slower parts of the computer. Um, and that way, every single computer, whether they were an ASIC or not, they would have to fill up their whole L3 cache over and over and over again in order to find a nonce. Um, ASICs were constructed for that. And our team decide, decided that we were going to try to switch up the proof of work algorithm, algorithm in a little bit in a way that uh, made it so that ASICs that had been taped out for this project um, would then be useless. Uh, so we specifically designed not uh, a change to our algorithm, not to keep the whole thing ASIC resistant forever, but to take any investment that people had made into uh, ASICs recently and destroy it, <laughs> which um, was arguably sort of like a, a radical decision to make. Because when we made our first proof of work change, our network uh, dropped its hash rate by 80%. Is that a long-term solution, by the way? Uh, no, it's not a long-term solution. I'll get to that in a second. Um, our whole hash rate dropped by like 80%, which means four and five miners were ASICs operated by this, but by whoever was making these ASICs. Um, we've since changed our algorithm again because uh, we suspected ASICs had arrived. And again, we saw about an 80% crash in hash rate. So um, that was with a six-month turnaround time. Somebody out there can manufacture ASICs rapidly enough so that within six months they can they can catch back up to where they were. Um, and after speaking with a couple of ASIC chip makers and such, um, uh, some people at Core Scientific in, in San Francisco and a couple of other people's at the uh, people at the recent uh, Bitcoin conference in Stanford, um, I suspect that an ASIC can be pushed out in 30 days or less. So um, there's something here that I think I, I, I would like to say. Have you have you heard or looked into any of the recent programmatic proof of work uh, work being done in the Ethereum community? Uh, actually, yes. Um, I was. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned ProgPow. Um, I was sitting on the Zcash board of directors, or not board of directors, uh, the com uh, grant committee last year, and ProgPow came up, and and we discussed that, and we decided not to to fund it. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I'm familiar with that right now, Howard Chu, who is, uh, with Simus corporation and is a big contributor to the Monero community. He's been working on, um, a proof of work algorithm that is designed around randomly generating tasks so that only a CPU can really ah. keep up. Um, and I believe that he's presenting about that at the Monero conference. So this June, um, which will be a really interesting thing because it's uh, right after a, I, I, we have some people in the community with very, very strong opinions about ASIC and proof of work, and they're all going to be gathering together and fighting in June. It's going to be great. That's going to get it all on camera. I guess for the audience. Uh, that, so what proof of work tried to do um, or is, is trying to do is to like first uh, to 
get rid of the concept of, of ASIC proof is that's not a thing, that's a farce. And anything, an ASIC can be made for any algorithm. Uh, the goal for ASIC resistance in terms of algorithmic development is to develop an algorithm that um, maps to hardware in such a way that creating a specialized ASIC for that algorithm has no economic gain compared to commoditized hardware. And so, for instance, if you try and make an algorithm specific towards GPUs, you make you make one that works perfectly for commoditized GPUs. So if you were to make an ASIC for that algorithm, it's basically a GPU. So what you're saying is that Monero decided not to go for something like this because you want to lean more towards CPUs as opposed to GPUs. Is that a good way to say it? Oh, I thought that's what FHash is... F-hash, F-hash is uh, originally has, supposed to do, and then they cracked that anyway. Yeah, they originally did that. It did a pretty good job. It's much better, much, much better than um, like Bitcoin proof of work, but there's still quite a bit of ASIC speed up uh, along the ways in terms of like 50x gain for an ASIC as opposed to like what ProgPal offers, which is something along the lines of like 1.2. So before you comment, uh, Brandon, I just I was actually going to ask before you brought ProgPal up, I don't know a whole lot about that either. Um, was, uh, you know, we have these big random number generators, which are called blockchains, and they're agreed random number generators, is basically what they are. Um, and so, like, my question is, uh, why can't we just use that random number to create a unique algorithm every time that can kind of, is that what ProgPow's intent is, no. or am I misunderstanding that? Misunderstanding. Uh, as- as far as I know, that is not what ProgPow is about. Um, so first off, the uh, the random number generator, the blockchain is a random number generator concept. Um, the notion of a random beacon is one that's been around for quite a while. Um, hasn't quite yet been been put into practice. The problem is is that uh, the information that you're putting in onto the Bitcoin blockchain is adversarially generated. That doesn't necessarily mean it's malicious. Doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It just means that an adversary controls what is being what is going into the random tape that is picking those random numbers. And if I, if you, if you imagine a computer is a little like Turing machine, like a little like computer with like a ticker tape machine that has a random tape feeding into it. And then like it spits out this output tape. If you can control the random tape that's going into it, then you can control the output tape. And even if you only have a small bias, um, you can, add that up over time right after all vegas is built on a small bias right this is typically called front running yeah yeah yeah, exactly and so um using a random a blockchain as a random beacon is problematic because it gives people who have a financial interest in screwing you over control over the random numbers that you're using for things and that is uh, that's that's pretty unacceptable unfortunately Um, all it takes is one extra transaction to throw the whole thing off though and if people are competing over the like, so basically every block so, generated but, is another hash that you can't determine until it's actually finalized. But, but if that's the case, then somebody who's trying to screw you over can spam the blockchain right before you two are about to do a transaction. Oh, right? just trust me. Like the generalized blockchain is not a very good random number generator. That uh, maybe BLS right. signatures could be. Uh, yep. and, and how those work with like the definitive beacon chain. That's a very, very, very different story. But the way blockchains work now in terms of secure random number generation is terrible. And it's, oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's susceptible to a lot of different social attacks associated with it. Yeah, I have to okay. I have to emphasize that um, it's actually like possibly this is this is a very common idea that a lot of people bring up. Um, it's it's possibly one of the most catastrophic things that anybody could ever actually implement. 
Um, the, the reason is, is that almost all of cryptography is based on selecting a uniform random number from some set. Um, if that set is the numbers from zero to two to the 252 or whatever, um, then so be it. But you're picking a random number from the uniform distribution. Um, if you look at the nonce density of the Monero blockchain, just look up nonce density graphs. You will see how non-uniform things can really be when we're talking about blockchain data. And if you're talking about people who can manipulate um, uh, random number distributions, uh, allegedly pseudo-random number distributions, to the point where it's so it's visibly non-uniform after only a few thousand data points or even a few hundred data points, uh, then then you're you're already in yep. territory where like people can forge signatures and stuff. I didn't even know that. So it, it's it's you know, I just kind of figured that over time it would be way you know it would be very 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 uniform, um, just based off of. But what is what is causing that bias? Out of curiosity, you're the math guy. I'm not. Um... Uh, well, for example, um, let's say I was designing a casino that operates off of the the last digit of the hash of the next of the top block right that's my random number generator and what i'm doing is i'm running a casino um what i'm going to do is after i've made a little bit of money in my casino i'm going to go invest in uh 30 of bitcoin's hash power and then i'm going to be able to control 30 percent of all of the next oncoming digits say that again i'm sorry so let's say i build a casino and all i'm going to do is i'm going to take the last digit of the next Bitcoin block hash. And depending on the output, I'm going to either going to pay you or I'm going to take money from you. Okay. All I need to do in order to make sure that my casino makes money is all I need is like 5% of the Bitcoin blockchain, like a uh, hash rate. If I can get a 5% of the hash rate, that gives me a 5% edge on every single bit that we're going to be using as an allegedly fair coin flip. So basically you find a block. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, you know, adhere to the way you'd like to do it. You throw it away and don't you don't submit it. Precisely, block withholding attacks are um, uh, block withholding attacks are actually one of the most interesting things in the entire space. Since you guys are Ethereum guys, you'll like this. Um, I think of Ethereum as a predator, and Bitcoin as prey. And this isn't necessarily a positive thing. And I'll tell you why. Somebody can create a smart contract in Ethereum and and to promise their uncle rewards to anybody who publishes bitcoin blocks that don't make it into the bitcoin blockchain as soon as somebody is like oh i can withhold bitcoin blocks and get ethereum rewards well since the uncle rewards in ethereum are subsidized by the network what you're doing is you're actually subsidizing an attack on bitcoin's hash rate using the ethereum network and you never actually pay for that attack. You just set up a smart contract and you just promise, give away your uncle rewards. Um, and when you start talking about people being able to use smart contracts in order to pre like prey upon um, the hash rate of other cryptocurrencies, um, the entire economy starts to vary and change. Um, so uh, when you're talking about something that involves uh, random number generation, stuff like that, um, like that's just even that, that's just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of ways that people can try to maliciously manipulate blockchain data. Um, if the Ethereum blockchain is subsidizing a block withholding attack on Bitcoin, then the casino example that I just provided you requires a lot less hash power to pull off. 
And that becomes right. significantly easier in a world where atomic swaps are a thing, where cross-chain yep. val validation is a thing. So things like Polkadot could literally destroy blockchain. <laughs> I mean, not technically, but you know what I mean? They're going to fix it. But like when you have interchain communication, you're opening up a whole new vector of attacks. Uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, we I mean, have like, a tremendous and, and, like, amount of, of interesting things to see in our future as the technology grows <laughs> and the connections between the technology also grows. And that's kind of like, it's, 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 it's going to be absurd. And the things like this are not only like uh, possible, they're more likely probable because we're dealing with money. And without taking too much of your time, we've already just took an hour and a half of it or an hour and 10 minutes of it. Uh, we should probably start to wrap up. Is there any are there any questions that we probably should have asked you or you wanted us to ask you that we didn't get around to? Um, Dude, gosh, you gotta have I you back on sometime. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> this is one of our best episodes. I love this. Um, just make sure you cut out that part earlier when I was lame. Um, when I first <laughs> no, started. we're keeping it in. <laughs> now it's that you said that, the, it's a part, part of the, of the thing. episode. Sorry, it's okay. Um, so, uh, gosh, um. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't have any, I don't have any, I can talk about Monero all day. There's a bunch of questions. I, I, I'm going to Clemson university next week to give a talk, um, on, uh, the cofactor malleability exploit that led to like a, a, a minting bug in Monero in January of 2017. No. And it's provably not exploited in Monero. Um, and then Bitcoin, somebody minted 69 million Bitcoin just for fun. Um, so I don't know. Like, there's like a bunch of different interesting things. Um, there's another, uh, there's this show called Breaking Monero that I've been occasionally doing with Sarong Noether and Justin Ehrenhofer, who's known as Samsung Galaxy Player. Um, they've, uh, w w where we talk about all the ding things that are wrong about Monero or things that have been going wrong or things that can be fixed, ways to break it, ways to violate uh, privacy, ways to like bas basically black hat analysis. Um, although it's not it's not nearly as rigorous as some of the red teams that I've seen, um, and so like honestly, there these topics are rabbit holes. And for every topic that we brought up today, there's an example from Bitcoin, and there's probably an example from Ethereum, and there's probably an example from Zcash, and we could probably spend all day. But no, I don't have any other uh, recommended. Oh yeah, buy tickets to the Conferenzo, guys. Go to go to MoneroCon.com with a K and check out. Uh, the Monero, the first annual Monero Conferenzo. Yeah, we'll and, definitely uh, be sure to include that in the, in the, in the show notes. And uh, I would like to have you back on, if we can, at a regular cadence, because I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know Colin has. And uh, if anyone had any type of issues with the research being done and legitimacy of the research being done in Monero, I think those those are you know, uh, you know sufficiently quelled at this point. And so thanks for coming on the show. We definitely appreciate your time and look forward to our future conversations. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we at Monero, we really well. I don't. I don't want to say we at Monero. We at Monero Research Lab. Um, <laughs> we we really value um, uh, educational outreach and going on shows and, and answering questions for people. We're also extremely shy mathematician types. Um, I can ask Sarong to see if he wants to hop on um, on a future episode, but um, this has been great, and I really want to thank you guys for uh, for having me on. Fantastic episode. Thanks a lot. Yeah, have a good one.